Okay. Today, my guest is Professor Gary Bruton. I'll keep my introduction short to maximize our time with him. In the next 30 minutes or so, we'll talk about Gary as a person, Professor Bruton as a thought leader and esteemed scholar, and finally as a PhD uh, mentor to many students and junior faculty. Uh, for the sake of time, I'll skip many of his accomplishments and give you a very quick snapshot. Professor Bruton's research is at the intersection of entrepreneurship, international business and strategy. He has authored or co-authored over 100 articles in our leading journals and three textbooks. He is currently an associate editor of Strategic Entrepreneurship Journal. Uh, he was the president of the Asia Academy of Management and former general editor of Academy of Management Perspectives and Journal of Management Studies. He is the only person to hold the whole Fulbright chair in entrepreneurship twice. In 2018, he was identified as one of the 96 most cited faculty in the world in all business and economic disciplines for research published in between 2006 and 2016. In 2019, he was also identified as among the 0.1% of the world's faculty for citations in all disciplines, in all universities in the world for research published between 2008 and 2018. Thank you, Gary, for joining us. Thank you. <clears throat> Gary, first question. What did you want to become when you were a child? <laughs> I, so I grew up in a very rural, uh, sort of poor part of Oklahoma, and I really had no I, you know, I, I'd never really traveled much out of the state. And, um, you know, we, we, lots of relatives didn't have electricity or running water. So my, my, my goals were pretty, pretty, pretty limited. I, I probably was pretty much be excited if I just uh, ended up with a, a steady job of any type right there in the area. So I, I clearly was not focused on international business. And so. When was the first time, can you remember the first time you realized uh, the difference between domestic versus foreign? Uh, I was older. So I was, uh, I, when I got out of uh, college, I worked in a factory. I was, I was a I made tires, uh, not as a manager, but as, a, as an hourly worker, union guy, uh, 11 at night, to seven in the morning. And so I actually didn't go out of the country till I was up into my thirties. And, and so I, uh, you know, to think about international business or anything really came very late in my life, relatively. Okay, and how did you choose academia? Um, it more chose me. Uh, I actually was working. I'd gotten my MBA after I worked in a factory. I was fortunate. I got a scholarship, got to go to George Washington. And they, um, you know, while I was there, I came back and I got a job in a bank, which was, I thought was ecstatic. And, uh, you know, I, but I didn't think they listened to me enough. I was basically their economist for a large commercial bank. And so I thought I'd get a PhD and I applied in finance at one of the leading universities there in Oklahoma. And the other one I applied in management and, and the management people seemed so much nicer. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and so I got that and I was planning to go back to business, but then you get into uh, academia and it's just an amazing lifestyle. I mean, it's just an amazing profession and I just love being an academic. It is just, uh, it's, a, it's a great life. I mean, I, I don't want to say you had a late start, but you, you got into the field late, right? Yeah. After a, a while. So uh, something that is not on your CV uh, that people might find interesting. 
Um, I'm a Quaker, and so I'm an Anabaptist. And uh, you know, we the the long beard comes natural. And um, you know, there's only seventy five thousand of us in the United States. We founded the United. We were one of the key groups that founded. But since we don't believe in evangelism, uh, there were seventy five thousand at the founding of the United States. There's seventy five thousand today. And so it's a it's a very sort of small odd. But if you read the American Constitution, you just see lots of Quaker ideas and phrases and everything everything there. And so it's it. But it it is. It is, and, and it shapes what my academia, I mean, you know, because I, I do believe in a lot of social justice issues and that clearly flows from that. Great, thank you. Uh, about uh, a second career path, I mean, if you stopped uh, doing what you're doing today, uh, what would you do? Uh, <laughs> I'd probably go live in a conservative, uh, not conservative in a political sense, but in a religious sense, I'd live in a, Amish or Mennonite community, if I could convince my wife to do it, and make furniture. You know, I, I, I would, I would uh, as I've gotten older, I've, I just, I, I, I think, uh, I get more convinced that a plain and simple life is what we should all be living. Okay. And um, regrets, have you got any regrets in life? Not really. I mean, you make lots of mistakes, but it's, you know, that's what all forms you. I mean, and so, no, I have no regrets. Uh, you know, if you did, you'd spend all your life worrying about what you should have done. But no, life is good. I have, I have an amazing life. I mean, you know, I'd worked in a factory 11 at night to 7 in the morning, and now I sit around in an office that's clean. I get to study what I want to. Academia is just an amazing, so I'm incredibly lucky, incredibly lucky. And uh, what was your biggest failure, and what did you learn from it? Biggest failure? Um You know, I, I don't, the biggest failure, gosh, um, you know, I, I, I don't know that there is one that is biggest. Um, you know, I, I, I would hope that there would all be ones that uh, we learn from. I mean, there's, there's, there's just sort of a constant flow. Everybody's human. They all make lots of mistakes. I think that's particularly for doctoral students. They all tend to take it all way too seriously, but they're in a marathon. They're not a sprint. I guess probably the biggest mistakes I, I used to make was that I, I really had too short a time focus. It should have been, should always be a long time focus because you have a long career and it's not just one article. It's lots of things that you do. And uh, you mentioned you would do furniture, you would produce furniture, have a simple life. Uh, do you actually do handcrafts? Do you? Do you do uh, I used to make furniture in my, my uh, but academia. Lately, I just haven't, it's been 20 years since I've done it. I still have the equipment, but my dad was an amazing uh, woodworker. I mean, that's something I guess people that, that we sort of do when we retire. When he retired, he made a, a, this amazing furniture that we, we still have. We principally, it's the principal furniture in our house, but he would, worked with black walnut that grew up where we, where we lived. So uh, yeah, we did, we, we, we have some, you know, I made a bedroom suit for my wife. Uh, when we got married and, uh, you know, but I, I would love to be able to spend more time, but it just takes a lot of time. You know, I'm not fast, I, but, but, you know, you just take your time, you're slow, you know, measure twice, cut once, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a, but it's, you build something that lasts. And so, you know, it's, you, you want to leave, uh, you know, that's what my father left me. That's what I'll leave my grand, that I'll leave his, my children, his grandchildren, and I'll make furniture for my children. Uh, that I'll leave them. So, Thank you. 
Thank you. Now, uh, let us switch gears to, to research. And how do you explain uh, what you do uh, and uh, why your research is important to people who don't read your work regularly? Uh, someone you would run uh, on the street. Uh, I'm principally focused, I think, on a lot of uh, social issues. And so I think particularly around poverty and entrepreneurship as a solution to poverty. And I think if you look at the world, we're very self-congratulatory about how we've addressed poverty. But basically, all we've done is stopped people from starving to death. If you look at um, like $5 a day average income, you know, the numbers really haven't changed. And particularly if you take China out of that. So I try to explain that I study international issues and particularly emerging economies and how people in poverty, how people in poverty try to improve their lives. I mean, I think rather than uh, just giving them charity, obviously there's starvation and other issues there's time for, but they're also somehow, how do you empower people to change their own lives? Yeah, if you could uh, identify a couple of uh, important topics, concepts, variables, uh, elements that are neglected or uh, forgotten or omitted from the research, uh, things that will uh, emigrate the field? Um. You know, I think poverty in general, we don't, uh, you know, you, you figure that, you know, we, we tend to focus on things that are in our lives. So we focus on rich, big corporations and venture capital and lots of things that affect the mature economies of the world that are a relatively small percentage, not of the world economy, but of the world population. And so we need to be focusing on poverty. We need to be focusing on inequality. You know, if the system is geared towards basically a few people ending up with astronomical wealth and COVID has just made it worse. And how do we make sure that our solutions are actually looking to help people? Because if it's just, if we're just enriching a few people and leaving the vast majority behind, we have, I don't think we're doing a service either as academics or as in business. We need to figure out how to do how, how to to address those those sorts of things. And so, you know, I think in general, how do how do we as academics improve the world? It's not just, you know, I, I don't think academics are to be this neutral, just interpreting the world. Oh, they do X and Y. We are to help improve the world. And so, I think we need to do it. I think we need to include race, and it's one of our variables. You know, we take a race neutral. Approach, but if we look at venture capital in the world, less than one percent goes to racial racial minorities. Something is wrong, you know, and, and that doesn't mean that they're racist. Let's say Silicon Valley, but it does mean that we're not looking at it. And how do we help them improve to where they're making decisions that are that are that are better? And so, you know, we need to move away from race neutral. We need to be thinking about inequality. We need to be thinking about people in poverty. Thank you. About uh, creativity and scholarship, uh, where do creative ideas come from, uh, at least for you? Uh, how does your mind work? My mind work. That's, that's, I, I don't know about that, but I do read a lot of stuff and even popular stuff. And you just wonder why that, why does that happen? You know, you, you read The Economist and you read in, uh, you know, in Africa that uh, a population is spending more than their average annual income on a funeral. And you just think, why does that happen? You, you think about 
why does you you look at things that don't uh, that don't make sense to you with your your sense of lens? I think particularly with international business, you know, it's one of the great benefits of being a foreigner and going someplace. You see things that other people take for granted because it's so ingrained, and so it's trying to interpret what's happening there. Um, you know, we've got some work in Kenya. And we're looking at auto repair shops. Very poor people living in a very tight community, but you ultimately figure out they're not motivated by profits in the same way we are. We always look at ecosystems, clusters, any of these ideas, and they're driven by economics. But there it's, it's driven by security. People want to work together. They help each other. They don't pr- try to compete on price. They loan tools. They support each other because they need each other. And so I'm unemployed today, and if you're empl- you have extra work in your shop, you give it to me. And so it's a completely different way of organizing a business than, than we normally think about. And so, um, and so you look at these things and you think, well, that doesn't make sense from what I know. And so I think that's one of the great beauties of international research is you go and you say, wow, that operates so differently. Why? About uh, the, your experience in writing textbooks, uh, uh, I mean, um, we, we had other guests who were uh, writing scholarly uh, books and obviously articles and uh, manuscripts, but uh, about uh, textbook writing, what was the trick, uh, trick in that one? Uh, you know, I enjoyed it. Uh, the, the, uh, we had an international management book. It, you know, between the, the company and us, it didn't take off. Uh, we have a small business book that I think is in the, Uh, entrepreneurship textbook that's in the top three in the world. Um, you know, you just, you, you basically try to have something to say. So we thought that most entrepreneurship books focus on venture capital and high risk, high reward types of things. The vast majority of entrepreneurship is instead, you know, really small investments from friends and family. And so we tried to focus it there and focus in a way that we didn't think it was addressing it. Um, you know, I, it, honest advice, if this is listened to by anybody who's a junior faculty, don't do it. Lots of time and lots of effort. You know, you, you make some money. The, the big book that is sold uh, worldwide and number one in the market for a big market. So entrepreneurship isn't even that big a market, you know, but you have the basic management book. You have the basic uh, marketing book that will sell millions of copies. That's pretty profitable. Most textbooks are not going to be wildly profitable for you. And so you do it because you want to say something and you want to sort of shape what people are thinking about it. But it's not a, this is not a wildly profitable business, you know, that you do. But it's nice to have a, a sideline. I write the book with a, a colleague. He used to be a colleague, an academic, but now he's a practitioner. And uh, he told me the first, uh, I guess we were talking a few months ago, and he made In one month, what he used to make as an academic. So, you know, he clearly doesn't need our textbook, but it's fun to write with him because he's got a very applied and interesting perspective that's different than an academic, you know, because he's hands-on now. Uh, what's your interpretation on the uh, evolution of international business, international entrepreneurship? Uh, My light uh, turned out. Let me make sure the light is on. Excuse me. So international entrepreneurship, uh, it's evolution. 
And, and so where has it, uh, you know, it used to be just take the, the, the American, North American, then European view, and people were just doing variations. And so how is this, a, how is there a boundary condition? I think what people are starting to realize is that context matters. And I think where the future movement's gonna be is that context matters dramatically. And entrepreneurship does not necessarily operate the same way, let's say in China that it does in the United States. So China, it clearly has a different economic system. We've always wanted to interpret China through a lens of, oh, it's just a variation of the West and it's gonna look like the United States in 10 years. It is, I think it, it is a different variety of capitalism. Uh, it is a form in which the government is not just advising, encouraging, but it is a co-partner in everything an entrepreneur does. And if you don't believe it, you can just talk to Jack Ma. And, and so, you know, it, this is a, it's a different form. And so context is critical. And we keep wanting to use universal theories and universalism. And this is just a small boundary condition on what we understand from the United States, which is a, you know, it's only 300 million, 350 million people out of, you know, the 6 billion. And then we look at one little situation, we study San Diego, high tech firms, and we say that's universal. And I think that context is, is really where the evolution is. How do you have unique systems in these countries? And I think that, um, you know, Daft and Lewin used to talk about uh, theory as a straitjacket. And, and I think we clearly have locked ourselves in the straitjacket. It's universal theory and it's just a slight variation, slight moderator. And, and, and the reality is context may mean it's a completely different system. And rather than trying to fit things into universal theory, we need to be trying to understand context and so an African context, an Asian context, a China context. I mean, there's, there is differences that fundamentally don't mean that things from North America apply universally. Thank you. Uh, Gary, who had the most influence on you? When you were going through the PhD program yourself, who, who was your uh, mentor, advisor, someone you looked up to? Well, the two people on my committee were, were a woman named Margaret White, uh, who's retired now, and then a professor named Ben Oviatt, um, who started, you know, Born Globals. And, and so they were both on my committee, and they were great friends. They are great friends, and I'm still in touch with them. And so uh, they, they clearly had a huge effect on, on my education. So, yes, still very good friends. What was the best advice you received from Ben Oviatt? You know, Ben once shared a story that he had published in Forbes, a letter, and he said that he was actually depressed that day because he realized that that letter was probably read more than anything he ever wrote. <laughs> and I think it, it was a sense of humility that, you, you know, you can't take it all too seriously. You know, we're, we're, we're academics. I love academia. I love research. I still spend 60 to 80 hours a week with it. Uh, but we're not solving child cancer. And, and I think sometimes academics take themselves a little too seriously, you know, and, and we, need to, we need to realize we're not, we need to try to connect with the business community because obviously we're an applied discipline. We're not a philosophical discipline. And, um, but I think that was really the point of what Ben was raising was that, you know, let's, 
let's not get things out of perspective. And I think that's even something to keep in mind when you're giving tenure or how you treat other colleagues. And we should all be kind, uh, especially in our profession. I mean, you know, this is not, should not be a cutthroat profession. It should be a very kind and gentle profession. We should be kind to those that we're working with and kind to those we're making tenure decisions with. Uh, kind when you're making editorial decisions, because your goal is to help them, not just get a number published. Thank you. About uh, the common mistakes that you see among the junior faculty or uh, PhD students, uh, some of the things that you see, uh, things that you would say uh, don't do or you know, do this. Don't do. Don't do uh, it just takes a lot of time. I mean, there's not an easy path. It is a, it just takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of practice. I mean, there are a few people who can write amazingly, just brilliant. They can go through a doctoral program and they write that paper once. The vast majority of people who I know who are still writing after lots of years, uh, a lot of times they weren't that good when they started. They just had to, took practice. I wasn't that good when I started. And it just took practice, 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 and you get better and better at it. And, and so... It's submitting, it's getting rejected, it's once you get rejected, make improvements. So, so look at it as a long-term effort and put in the time, just put in the time. What's the advice for mid-career faculty, uh, people who have jumped over the hurdle of the, the tenures? Uh, don't get involved in too much administration. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because everybody... If you want to do the research, it just takes time. And if you get involved in other activities, it will suck you away. And I think even more so now. So you, so I'm older. The gray beard is real. Um, people, you have people like my kid who was just amazing. You know, he was a journal editor. He's president of the academy. He publishes, and he still publishes amazing amounts of things. I, I think that's a model that most people can't do now. Most junior faculty either have to pick, we're gonna be administrators, I'm gonna be an association activist, I'm going to be involved with the journals or I'm gonna do research um, because you've really got to spend time. You know, at this stage, they're getting like AMJ or AI, you know, jibs. Or, you know, they'll get jibs 500, 800 manuscripts a year. They're accepting 4%. It's just a very, very tough competition. So it takes a lot of time and effort. And so, you know, you got to, once you get to, you got you to pick which one you want to do. Just don't assume you can do it all, you know. And if you go administration route, sort of be happy with it, enjoy it, but recognize that it probably does affect other, other things in your life. Thank you. Uh, Gary, what's the last, uh, last question? What's the question that I should have asked you about heaven? Uh, I think you did a great job. You know, I, I think academia, you know, I hope that we continue with it. I hope we continue to prove our value to society. We, they continue to empower us to do what we do. We really teach, most of us teach relatively little and, and we're able to do research and create new knowledge and we work with young people. I mean, could you imagine a better job and so I think, uh, I think you did a great job. And I think the only thing I would leave with is, you know, I just hope we all are able to keep, keep going because this is an amazing profession. So uh, one that's been very kind to me. 
Thank you so much for your time. I learned a lot. I'm sure the audience will agree with me. Thank, Thank you, you very much. much. You're very kind to, to talk to me. I appreciate it.